All right, let me ask you please to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to be preaching from just the first three verses, verses 1 to 3. Thank you for the good singing this morning. Ladies, thank you for the wonderful special. I get the double blessing of not only hearing it in church, but I get to hear them practice uh, consistently, and I get to hear Amy play that all the time at home, and it's a lovely, it's lovely music that they play all around, but I especially enjoyed that song this morning, King of Love, outstanding music. Luke chapter 8, and let's read together verses 1 to 3. Luke 8 says, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Now that sounds like a, a simple statement, but you have to understand there's a lot that goes into just being with Jesus. Can you imagine how action-packed this man's ministry was? How much stuff is going on all the time? Verse 2, and certain women. Now notice at the end of verse 1, there's no full stop. Right? The twelve were with him, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. <clears throat> and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. And my thought this morning is mainly coming from the end of verse number 3. I'd like to preach to you a sermon called a substantial ministry. A substantial ministry. If you would bow your heads with me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. It is wonderful to be gathered together and to do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we were allowed to do this. We're supposed to do this because you, you gave us this obligation, this privilege. But also, Lord, you've said that you would meet with us, that you would be in the midst of us. And that's what we're looking forward to the most. Please help all of us now. Help me as I stand to preach. Fill me with your spirit, but also the listener. Lord, fill them and prepare them to receive the seed into good ground. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In verse number one, it's, it's kind of a summation of what Jesus is busy doing. Going about to every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings, which is another way of saying the gospel, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Just so that you understand what is meant by that, many times the word or the phrase kingdom of God is used, and people use it to mean heaven. The kingdom of God is never heaven. Never. It never has, it, it's obviously there's a link, but it is not the same as heaven. The kingdom of God breaks into two parts. There is a political version Right? The kingdom of God will one day be established on the earth. When Jesus comes back, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is, he is God manifest in the flesh. And He will run the political governments of the world. Right? So the kingdom of God can mean that. And when Jesus came, He certainly did offer such a political fix to the world. Doesn't the world need a political fix? Did you know that it's not going to get fixed until Jesus comes back? That's the only hope. Now, there's that political version, but there's also the personal version of the kingdom of God. The political version is an outward thing that can be seen, but the spiritual version of the kingdom of God is personal and inward, and it cannot be seen. 
So when Jesus comes back, he sits upon the throne of his father David in Jerusalem and runs the world from that position as his headquarters. But before that ever happens, even this morning, Jesus desires to sit upon the throne of your heart and rule in your heart and rule over your life personally, daily, and intimately. The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So when you are yielded to the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is operating in your life. God is seated upon the throne of your heart. You have yielded control to Him. Now all of this is contingent on repentance, right? As Jesus went about preaching the glad tidings, He didn't say, good news, I'm going to do it all for you no matter what you do. That wasn't the good news. The good news is repent, the time is at hand, the kingdom is being offered, right? The, The time is fulfilled, the Messiah has shown up, but our part as human beings is to repent. And that is the whole yielding aspect of the kingdom of God, to say, Lord, I'm not smart enough or good enough or right enough to run my own life. Therefore, I want you to run it. And and the world would do good to admit the same thing about its political situation. God, we're not smart enough to run ourselves. We yield ourselves to your rules as well. Now, that's the summation of the first part of verse 1. Then Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, sees fit to give us some other details. And the twelve were with him. We have already spent time talking about the twelve apostles, who they were, a bit of their background. I I gave you a, a short biography on all of them, where they ended up, how they ended up dying, what they did for the Lord. So let me not take too much time on the twelve, but understand they are going out two by two and preaching in all of these villages. That's what they're busy with. And then verse 2, and certain women. And obviously, this is a unique part of the Bible. No other gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, or John, they do not give us this information. Luke, out of all the gospel writers, tends to offer more information about the women involved in Jesus' ministry more than any other writer in the Bible. And I believe the Holy Spirit had him do that for some very uh, important reasons. Let me just point one of them out. Luke is generally recognized, not only by Christians, but even by secular universities. It is said that Luke is one of the greatest historians of all time. Of all time. There was an archaeologist who set out to prove Luke wrong. His name was Sir William Ramsey. And he set out to to journey the same path that you read about in the book of Acts, because Luke wrote the book of Acts, right? And the Gospel of Luke, obviously. So Sir William Ramsey was an atheist. He went about, he said, I'm going to go to each place and check up on Luke and see if he was telling the truth. Ramsey, by the end of his little experiment, not only said Luke, he nailed it better than any historian Ramsey had ever studied, but Ramsey himself ended up converting and becoming a lifelong Christian based on how accurate and how solid and powerful, right? The stories themselves are simply powerful. Now, why is that information pertinent when we read about certain women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others? We don't even get all of the names. Well, in ancient times, the testimony of a woman 
was not considered as safe or as secure as that of a man. If you went to a court, you know, you're in a court system having a trial, very rarely would anybody call a woman to the stand because in those times, in this biblical time, the average secular society didn't think much of a woman's ability to recount the story faithfully. Therefore, you don't read very many ancient writings that offered the ideas and opinions of a woman in order to support some new teaching such as Christianity. But when you read the Gospel of Luke, you go to the end and you find out, and this is true of the other Gospels as well, but Luke gives us all the names, that the first people at the tomb on resurrection morning were women. Now just think for a moment, if the apostles were making up the story of the resurrection, which a lot of people think they did, if they were making it up, in ancient times you would not insert women into the story to say they were the first ones to the tomb and women were involved in the ministry of Jesus. You wouldn't put that in as part of the story because in the ancient mind that would weaken the story. People would not tend to believe it. Luke put it in there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because it was true. Because it was true. And this is actually something that has stood for centuries as a, a Mark for Christianity, not against it. They call it the criterion of embarrassment because this is one of those facts that if you're inventing the story, you wouldn't invent it in this way. The fact that the women were there and involved and playing the roles that they did just shows, number one, that Luke was being honest, and number two, and even more importantly, Jesus doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. He sees value no matter what the gender. And I do mean gender and not sex. No matter what the gender. He says it's just as valuable. Now, does that mean that they're all doing the same thing? Well, no. As we can see, the twelve were out preaching. And the women were ministering, it says, of their substance. We're going to talk a little bit more about what is entailed in that. But one thing that is historically true, you can go down the pages of history... You can walk around in the world today and you'll find this. Any society where Christianity has touched it, the role of women, the value of women, the way people view and treat women always improves every single time. When William Carey got to India, they, they had a custom there that when the man dies, then the woman has to throw herself on the fire where the man is being burned so that she can join him in the afterlife. William Carey brought Christianity and the end of that horrible practice to India. To this day, they still honor him for doing that. And that's one small example of how all over the world, women get treated better where Christianity gets accepted. And the Gospel of Luke, I think, points it out very clearly here that women can play an incredibly important role. Jesus was not ashamed to have women moving about as one of his students, right? As his students, as his disciples, and even participating actively in the ministry. Now, granted, this lesson actually today, I'm just getting a few preliminary things out of the way, you understand. Luke didn't write this just to tell us about the role of women in ministry. That's not the point of the passage. We're going to focus on something else. But while we're talking about it, let me just point something out. <clears throat> the Bible does make the roles of men and women clear. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. That's the way God set it up. 
God knows exactly when he made us. I made this, this man to do these things and this woman to do these things. And let us never be ashamed of our God-given roles. Just because society is putting pressure on us to conform and, well, women have to be like this and men have to be like that and we have to accept this and that. No, we don't. We have to fulfill our God-given roles. Ladies, never be ashamed of the fact that God has given you some special and unique things to do that us men simply are not good at. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with being good at those things. When did it become a bad thing to be a wife and a mother? Why is that frowned upon? Why is it that in the world, when the world talks about it, oh, shame, you're just a housewife. You're to, oh, oh, you don't get to have a career. You have one of the greatest callings there is to raise your children. That's a high calling. When we go all the way back to the garden, God looked at Adam and said, shame, you're not going to make it on your own, buddy. <laughs> I got to make a woman to help you out. Why, the woman is one of God's most special creations. You don't have to read two pages in the Bible and you figure that out. Men, you and I, we, we, we came from the dirt. Right where the dogs came from. Amen. And the horses. And the giraffe. And a rhinoceros. And an anteater. And a pig. That's us. Amen. But not you ladies. Right? We're different. And I I love the conclusion. You know all this gender stuff that the world is all up in arms about. Did you know that it was already dealt with 2,000 years ago in the New Testament? There are portions of chapters in the New Testament that deal with gender dysphoria. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 11, the first half of the chapter, deals with it. Let me give you just a quick summation of the whole argument The Apostle Paul said, Neither is the woman without the man, neither is the man without the woman, but all things are of God. God has set it up to where we need each other. And the fact that we might play different roles is not a knock against one or the other, it's just the way God set it up. I'm not ashamed to say it, although there's much controversy around it, but I do believe it's important to know what the Bible says about women in ministry. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34 makes it very very clear. Let your women keep silence in the churches. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, I suffer not a woman to teach, but to be in silence. That's, that has to do with leadership during a church service. Now, obviously, we're not unpacking that completely today. There are some very sound, biblical, and even practical reasons for the, for the way God set up His church. It's based on how He set up His home. Did you know that? 1 Timothy 3 points that out. Who is to be the head of the home? The man. And and the Bible says that a, a pastor has to know how to rule his own house well so that he can be an example to his flock. Well, if the man is to be the head of the home, then it just, you step that example into the church, you need male leadership. It's not a big stretch to see where this setup comes from. I was teaching on this one day and while we were meeting at the puck, this is some years ago, and I covered the verses, the relevant verses on it, answered the normal questions, and then one person said, well, if women can't preach in church, what can they do? As if to say there is only one thing a person can do in church, and that's stand and preach. Why, all of you have contributed today. Amen? 
You stood, you sang, some of you gave, some of you prayed, some, some of you brought your Bibles. A few of you are even going to squeak out an amen by the end of the service. <clears throat> we had two ladies come and sing beautifully and play beautifully for us, and they put their heart and soul into that. That's ministering to people. That's not leading the church service, but it's ministering. It's, it's helping. It's doing something. So to answer the question, if a woman can't preach, then what can she do? Everything else. <laughs> like anything and everything else, she simply cannot lead the church service. Now, with those preliminary statements aside, can we focus our attention now on verses 2 and 3? I believe the passage teaches us an even greater lesson and that is at the end of verse 3, many others which ministered unto him of their substance. They had a substantial ministry. Who? I'm going to say the 99.9% .9 of the people that are not called to be in the full-time ministry as preachers. Think about this. There were the 12. They were the ones called lifelong to be in the ministry, yes? Yes. But everyone else, everyone else, and I think that pretty much covers almost all of you, right? There might be one or two of you, maybe three or four. Hey, let's pray for five or six that God calls you into the full-time ministry. I hope it happens. But the fact of the matter is, very few people get called full-time into the ministry. You know what you're going to be, uh, the opportunity you're going to have? You'll be the other 99.9% .9 of the people that get to help the ones that are called into the full-time ministry. This passage, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter. You will have the opportunity that these certain women had to minister unto Him of your substance. And that is no small thing. That is not a small privilege or a small contribution. It is of the utmost necessity. Now, obviously, as these women moved about, right? They went with Him. They're, they're, they're traveling around with Him. And when the disciples needed food, Jesus needed something to eat, when clothes needed to be washed, when beds needed to be arranged, these ladies would step up. And, and sometimes Herod's steward, Cusa, he's got a good job. I don't know how much Cusa was on board, but Joanna was using her resources to support this ministry. We are not called upon to be a traveling church, right? Jesus had a traveling church. You understand that? Wouldn't that be kind of fun, though? Just for a few weeks or maybe months to be a traveling church, to go from city to city and just preach in every city. Wouldn't that be something? Did you know that while we go from city to city, we've got to eat? Yeah. Right? And I don't know about you, I don't want to live off McDonald's. Right? We'd, maybe a better way to say that is I don't want to die by McDonald's. We've we got to eat. We, we, we need clean clothes, presumably, right? There are certain things that you just can't ignore in life, and somebody's got to take care of that. The book of Zechariah says this, despise not the day of small things. And, and ladies, again, I'm pointing this out. I want to make sure this is clear. This is not a lesson on, well, the ladies can only do this while the men are only doing that. Women, men, doesn't matter. If you're not called in the full-time ministry, you're called to support it. Now, there's two ways we see this happening in our day and time. Like I said, 
unique situation what Jesus had, traveling church, going from place to place, and it's not like he had some massive headquarters somewhere and there was a bunch of satellite groups going out. This is Jesus with an upstart. Right? He's just getting things off the ground. Christianity as a movement is not going yet. It's just a few people moving about preaching. But while they're doing this unique situation, what we have now is a local church and we have missionaries that are going out starting local churches in other places. And we can and should support those things. If you're not called to do the preaching, going out two by two, then you have the opportunity to have a substantial ministry. Very substantial ministry. My sermon this morning is very short. One point. It's a long one, but it's one point. <laughs> I've already mentioned, you know, we're talking about the local church. We're talking about foreign missions because that is how God, that's His method for reaching the world. Is through a local church and through missions that will set up local churches. So obviously what we're going to talk about, you would think we're talking about tithing. We're talking about giving financially to missions. Not ashamed to talk about either of those things. They're, they're biblical. They're right. And again, it's a privilege to be involved. But I'm going to approach this very differently because I think I know my sheep. Let's not pretend that everybody's generous okay? Some of you, you squeeze that rand so tightly that your president can ride on the back of the eagle. <laughs> However, I, I, I do know you folks for 10 years now, you, you are an incredibly generous bunch. And I've never really had to drum up the idea of giving. I want to teach you about it because biblically we have responsibilities. But I've, I've never had to twist your arm for giving. So I'm not, I'm not talking this morning about, come on guys, let's give, let's give more, let's give more. I, I'm rather, I want to talk about your heart and, and the why that you give, the why you minister with your substance. I just want to focus on that just for a few minutes. All right, real quickly, let me tell you what Jesus did not do in the passage. These people are ministering unto him of their substance. You never read anywhere where Jesus twisted their arm and said, hey guys, come on, I'm doing all this work. I came all the way from heaven for you. Now you ought to do something. He didn't twist their arm. There was no manipulation tactics. He didn't sell tickets. There was no promise, if you give this much, then you'll be blessed that much. There was no windfall of prosperity promised to anybody. Jesus did teach about giving. But you know, any time that he taught about giving, you know where his lessons usually would travel off to? Talking about your heart. He would talk about why you give. When Jesus taught about it in Matthew 6 in his great Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you give your alms, don't do it to be seen of men. It went right to the why are you doing it. Not how much you're doing it, but why are you doing it. So I'm going to talk about why these certain women and why certain of you, all of you, should minister to the Lord of your substance. Here's my one point, my one reason. They knew Jesus. That's it. Let's all stand, heads bowed, and no, <laughs> they, they had experienced the Lord firsthand. 
Now, look at the verse. Verse 2, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits. Now, we know that's Mary Magdalene. In Mark chapter 16, Mark also tells us about Mary with the seven devils. But notice how it's plural here. Certain women, plural, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna and Susanna, many others. Now, maybe they all had problems with devils. Maybe they all had sicknesses or both. Who knows? Doesn't, doesn't tell us. But I know this. They all had personally had an interaction with the Lord. And that interaction was so powerful. They had tasted and seen the difference that the Lord can make. They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And they said, we want everybody else to get a taste of this. You see, once you've tasted and, and seen just what a difference He makes in every part of your life and changes your heart, the pocketbook kind of takes care of itself. That becomes almost a non-factor. You're like, but of course I would want to give to this. I know how much it works. The Bible invites us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now either you are in need of tasting or you should be the one inviting others to taste. And if you cannot physically get out there two by two and tell people about the Lord, you can support the people that are because you know how powerful that ministry can be. When I was a younger man, my dad would take me to the farm every year. I'd spend two, three, sometimes four weeks on the farm. My grandfather had a thousand acre farm. And I don't know what it is about farm life. Every summer, my dad would say, Mike, you got to try this, man. You got to taste this. This is, this is some good eating. That's a, that's a country term. That's good eating. My grandpa would say, it's larapin good. I don't even know what larapin means, but larapin good. I think that has something to do with larap. I, I don't know what that means, but larapin good. And, and, and grandma would cook the strangest stuff. Now, this isn't so, so strange, but how many of you have had cow's tongue? I think that's a fairly regular thing. I actually am not averse to a, a decent cow's tongue. It's just the idea of this was once in the cow's mouth, and now it's in my mouth. I just, I, that's not my thing. But the meat itself, if you didn't tell me it was cow's tongue, I'd be perfectly happy to eat that. And then, you know, my grandmother used to make this stuffing. You know, I, you put the stuffing inside of a, a turkey or a bird of some sort. And uh, it's kind of a Thanksgiving meal, so maybe you don't have it so much here. But how many of you know what a gizzard is? How many of you have had gizzards? Okay, now, now and there's not as many hands going up, but, to, but a few of you know about the gizzard. Oh, my grandma was the gizzard queen. There are gizzards everywhere. I mean, gizzards in the rice pudding, gizzards in the stuffing. There was gizzards in my cereal. At, <clears throat> That's inside like the intestinal tract of the animal. <clears throat> but they would always say, you got to taste this. You got to taste and see, taste and see kidneys and livers and hearts and, you know, the offals. Is that, that's, that's the proper name, the offals. Oh, that is so aptly named, offals. Yes. <laughs> Whichever culinary wizard came up with that, yes, you nailed it, brother, offals. The one that my dad wanted me to try the most of all of them, and, and it, it, it didn't happen until I was in my 20s, pickled pig's feet. 
Now, how many of you have had that? What? No. Come on, don't lie. We're in the house of God. <clears throat> You've had pickled pig's feet? Wow. You don't like it? Amen, brother. I knew you were saved. I knew you were saved, brother Don. I knew it. I was in my 20s, and I went home on a, uh, to, I was in Bible school, actually. went home to visit Dad, and, and there was a big jar, like a two-liter jar of pickled pig's feet. And you could see the feet in, in that pick, pickling, not liquid, but gel. And he said, son, you, you going to try one of these pickled pig's feet? You got to taste and see. I said, Dad, I, you, just, you don't have to jump into the ditch to know it's dirty. I don't... <laughs> I don't, need, I don't need to answer that question. Oh, that just, he said, well, you got to taste and see. I thought, well, that's biblical. i got to taste and see. All right. <laughs> I still don't like pickled pig's feet. I did. I tried them. And I thought, why did I try that? That's why you never hear me from the pulpit going on about how you need to try it. Because, bleh, that is just <laughs> nasty. And I'm happy to report to you this morning that Jesus is nothing like pickled pig's feet. <laughs> I am very happy to tell people that they need to try the Lord Jesus Christ. That they need to not only accept Him as their Savior, but they need to yield their lives to His teachings and, and just try it. Just go one week living by the teachings of Jesus Christ and see how much joy and peace and happiness and contentment and fulfillment you realize in your life. In just one week, give it one week. Oh, taste and see. This is why after I got saved, giving really wasn't a big issue for me. Now, I'm not the most generous guy in the world, but I've never really struggled with it because the Lord made such a difference in my heart. I want Him to make that difference in somebody else's heart. I believe in the Messiah. I believe in His mission. I believe in His message. And I believe in His men. I believe in the ones He's called to go get the job done. I believe in the missionaries we support. That's why we support them. I believe that they are genuinely called by God to get out there and get the job done. I'm on board with supporting our local church. I believe it's a God-ordained institution. And I believe it can help people for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have no problems getting behind that and ministering to that with my substance. Take your Bible, just a couple pages to the right. Look at Luke chapter 10. Verse number 7. Luke 10 and verse 7. Jesus is sending out the 70. Now, remember, He sent the 12 two by two. Then He also sends out the 70 two by two. This is later on. And in verse 7, He's told these guys to leave all their personal possessions behind. And he says, in the same house remain, eating and drinking such, such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. You know what Jesus is telling these people to do? Trust that God will provide for you through his people. Do you see that? So leave all your personal possessions at home. Travel about preaching. Don't abuse their kindness. Don't. Don't eat all the best food, take their offering, and then go to the next house and get it again, and go to the next house and get it again. Don't go from house to house, but when you get to a new place, and you greet them, and they are friendly and open to you, and say, yes, we would like to help your ministry, stay at that house, eat what they give, be happy with that, and preach. Now, now see, we often look at the faith 
of the men going out two by two and go, you know, that takes a lot of faith, and it does. But let's talk for a moment about how many people actually supported the gospel ministry in this time. And it's not as if they had 2,000 years of church history to look back on and go, yeah, this is worth the investment. There was this new guy, Jesus, who's about 31, 32 years old, who is an enemy of the state, and he's sending out these guys that didn't have formal educations or instruction for the ministry. We would call them in, the, in America ragamuffins. <laughs> and, and the Bible says in the book of Acts that they were unlearned and ignorant men. That's their CV. And they show up and say, hey, we're preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Would you like to help us out? And we do not know how many dozens or even hundreds of people ministered of their substance. And said, yeah, we'd like to get on board with that. And they were a big reason that the ministry of Christ and the early church was propelled forward. Would you like to get in on that? So I want to do something meaningful and substantial, substantial for the ministry. This is one way you can do it. This is one way you can do it. There was a young boy one time, five loaves and two fishes, yes? It's like I'm having a great idea. The light just, <laughs> the light just came in right here. Five loaves and two fishes. You say, what, what I have to give, my substance isn't that much. Yes, but in the hands of Christ, you just never know how far that'll go. It'll go farther in His hands than it will yours. And you'll never regret having done it. Jesus taught us like this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see how when Jesus talks about money, it goes right to the heart? He, he doesn't aim at your pocketbook, He aims at your heart. Because he knows if I can get a hold of your heart, the pocketbook will, that will happen. It will happen as necessary. But if you want the real blessing out of it, you do it from the heart. What does the Bible teach us to do about giving? Don't do it grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. You know what makes us cheerful? We know what a difference the Lord Jesus Christ has made in our life. He's already passed by our way. He found us when we were at our lowest point, seven devils, full of sickness, full of problems, and instead of ignoring us and going on, we had nothing to offer Him, and yet He offered everything to us and for us. Guys, do you realize these ladies are getting involved with their substance before Jesus died on the cross? Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but Him dying for my sins kind of is a big part of my walk with Him. They didn't even have that, but they didn't mind getting involved with their substance because, hey, he's worth the investment. Take your Bible. Come to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You see, giving is not so much about the numbers. Now, guys, let, let's be honest. I mean, we live in a world where money pays the bills. So obviously, you're going to have to give in order to go forward with certain projects. But what's far more important is why you're doing it. And my concern this morning is that maybe, maybe, you do it because you're used to doing it. You do it because it somehow salves your conscience because you don't want to be involved in the other stuff. These ladies went with him. 
What do you think Mary Magdalene would do when, when, she, when she went to the market to shop for the groceries to make the food? What do you think she'd do? Somebody says, why are you buying big bags of onions and potatoes? And what, why, why do you need a side of lamb? You're, you're just, you know, a lady. Is your family that big? And she says, well, I'm actually feeding about 30 people. 30 people? What do you mean? Well, we're actually a, a small group of people that follow the, the Messiah. You know how many times I bet she witnessed in the market just because she went to shop for groceries? Mary and Joanna and Susanna, they did not see their money as a way of getting out of all the other stuff they could do for Christ. That was just yet another way they could support their Savior. Philippians 4, look with me at verse number 15. Now, ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Quick word about the Philippian church. They were maybe the poorest church of all the places Paul went. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that these people had deep poverty. Deep. Poverty is pretty deep already. They had deep poverty poverty. It's not like their pockets had holes in it. They didn't even have pockets to have holes in. I mean, that, that's deep poverty. And yet, as soon as they found some resources, some substance, they were the only church that helped Paul in his ministry. Look at verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift. Paul says, I, I'm, I'm not saying any of this so that you just send me more money. But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So when Paul sent word to the Philippians, I'm going to Thessalonia, I'm going to start a church there. The Philippians went, oh, can we give too? We want to be involved. Now, you go back and read 2 Corinthians 8. Paul tried to talk them out of it. He, he, he didn't want, because he knew how poor they were. He said, guys, come on, keep your money. No, 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 I, I can't take your money. And they said, they begged him, they beseeched him, please let us get involved. Don't rob us of this blessing. And the Bible says they first gave themselves to the Lord and then unto Paul, un, unto those church leaders there. They were willing of themselves. And they did it, and Paul says, I desire fruit that may abound to your account. It's a good investment. These ladies that we read about in Luke chapter 8, they traveled around, they did the odds and ends, but that was a substantial ministry. Just imagine how they sit now, up in heaven, having poured their substance into that ministry. What a great investment. Look at verse 18. Paul says, but I have all and abound. I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. You don't have to be the preacher in order to do something well-pleasing to God. You know what these dirt-poor Philippians did? They just gave the little bit of money they had, what they could manage to give, and they did it willingly, and they did it cheerfully, and they did it because they loved the Lord. They did it because the gospel had come to their town and had changed them. And now they wanted the Thessalonians to have that same chance. You guys help me out here. I, I, I am no good at making investments like stock market stuff. I've never really understood that. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's a fast way to lose a lot of money. 
put money in, wave goodbye. You know, it's like a glorified trash can for money. I, I, I don't understand it, right? But, but I'm sure some of you do. Maybe, maybe you guys have heard of these two companies, Apple and Microsoft. Anybody heard of those? We know a little bit about them. How many of you are Apple people and willing to admit it? Oh, come on. There's got to be more of us. Come on. Those of you that are Apple product people, here we go. Let's represent Okay, some of you young kids are like, I eat apples. Not, not that. <laughs> apples. All right. You know the name Steve Jobs. Who was his other partner? Wozniak, something like that? Okay. You know the, do you know the name Ron Wayne? Co-founder of Apple. He got in when Apple was a startup, and he joined with a 10% stake of that company. After he bought in at 10%, he cashed out 12 days later at the grand total of $800. Had he stuck with it, today he'd be worth $80 million. You know, it's one of those things where you look back and you go, if I'd only have known. <laughs> you see, he was in his 40s. Steve Jobs was in his 20s, and he thought, you know, you got to be a young man to get involved in such a big enterprise. I, it's just too much for me. I don't want to die rich, you know, because I'll die fast if I, die, if I get in this, so I'll just stay out. $80 million. Now, for those of you that aren't Apple fans, but perhaps Microsoft is more your thing, you might know a name, Bill Gates. How many of you know this name, Ross Perot? Maybe some of you keen political people. Back in the 1980s in America, Ross Perot was a big name. He was a Texan. And uh, he was a billionaire. And he ran for president a couple of times as an independent, not a Republican or Democrat. And he almost won. He's the only independent to, come, to get that close. But an incredibly wealthy, successful man. Bill Gates, at the age of 23, sat down with Ross Perot and tried to sell Mr. Perot Microsoft. Microsoft was just a startup at the time. So he said, listen, here's my plans. I think my business will grow. I would like, and they, you know, negotiated anywhere from 40 to $60 million for my startup company. That's a big price tag, but Perot is a billionaire. So to him, that's, you know, not that much. But Perot said, ah, I'll give you $6 million. And then he eventually went up to, I'll give you $15 million. But they could never work out the deal. So Perot walked away. Now Perot is now dead and gone. He was an older man at that time even, but had he jumped on board with this deal and bought it when he did, it would have been worth today $750 billion. God, if you'd only have known. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you just look back and go, if I had known that it was such a great investment I would have put a few of my resources and substance into it. Folks, do you see already where I'm going with this? They could not have known the potential and the future of Apple and Microsoft for sure. There were risks involved because you're dealing with something that may or may not happen. We have the promise of God's Word that when you minister unto the Lord of your substance, that treasure that you lay up in heaven, no moth, no, no, moth, no rust, 
No thief. SARS can't even get to it. That's safe, brother. That's safe. That's an investment you will never, ever regret. Luke has done us a favor this morning by mentioning a few names of some people that played an important role in the life and ministry of Jesus and His early disciples. He honored these ladies by mentioning their names and what they did. I want to do the same thing, but this morning, unfortunately, I cannot tell you the name of this lady, but I'm going to pay her homage, if you will, and show honor to whom honor is due by telling you her story. Approximately 21 years ago, I traveled to the state of Michigan and preached in a small church in Tecumseh, Michigan. This church that evening had six people there. Six. It was a small, dwindling church. Their pastor was quite old and on his way out of the ministry. And it was really not a very exciting meeting, as you can imagine, with six people, right? My family made up over half the church that night. And after that meeting, I preached, I, I explained about Malawi and what we wanted to do there, and I didn't expect them to give me any money or support. It's such a small church. This old lady, she was in her 80s. She came to me afterwards, and she said, Brother Mike, I'm on a fixed income. I tithe. I barely pay my bills. But... I want to do something before I go to heaven. And I, there's not a lot I can do because of my age. And I'm not quite sure how I'm going to make it. But I'm going to give you $25 a month of my income as long as I'm alive. I never got her name. She sent me $25 a month for several years until she went home to glory. And wouldn't you know it, that church not only survived that dip in their membership, but to this day they're still open, have a new pastor, and I checked it last night to be sure, every month. In her memory, they send $25. Not a lot, but it's substantial. She is, she is doing it not because of Mike Flick. She did it because a long time ago she met the Lord Jesus Christ and it changed her life. And she believed in the Messiah, His mission, His message, and His men. She said, I can't do much, but that's what I can do. And I promise she's up in glory now with that fruit, with this fruit that has been counted to her. It is in her account. She'll never regret that. You have an opportunity, all of you, the 99.9%, you can do something substantial for the Lord. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Pianist will come and play something softly. If you have had a personal interaction with the Lord then you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know what a difference He can make. And now it's, it's, it's really not difficult. Real simple logic here. It worked for you. It can and will work for the next person.
Now, let's work together to get that message to the next person. As I mentioned in the beginning, I I know you folks, you're a generous bunch. I have never struggled to get you to give. But I don't want you to lose sight of why you're doing it. I want you to do it because you love the Lord. Because He made a difference in your life. Because you truly believe in His message and His mission. I want you, when you drop that money in the bag or that EFT in the bank, to do it cheerfully. If you've never gotten involved with the grace of giving, here's what I'm going to recommend you do. Before you look in your wallet or your bank account, look in your heart. And just make sure that your heart is where it needs to be with the Lord. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Before we close, I'm going to ask you to examine one thing. Ask one question. Maybe challenge you in this way. I want you to think about the substance you have. Not just your money, but what you own. Now I want you to look at it, maybe inventory that in your mind, and say, how can I use this for the Lord? Maybe there's something just laying around, not helping anyone. Perhaps, perhaps you can see it as an opportunity to be a blessing to someone else. Give because you get to, not because you got to. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, that unspeakable gift, when you sent your Son to die in our place. We owe you our everything. Lord, as best we know how, we freely give ourselves to you. And Lord, our pocketbooks come with that. Whatever we can do, Lord, to get the gospel to the next person, whatever it is, we're eager. We're ready. I do pray that you'd speak to the individual hearts in here today. Show them just how important their contribution is. Lord, we do it because you made such a big difference in our lives. And we can never thank you enough for that. Lord, as we dismiss, as we head to the baptism, let it be a special time. Again, as we remember, this is why you sent us, to make disciples. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.